I'm just thankful that God knows what's going on and He knows how to lead and guide us. Have you ever awakened to an empty house and felt like some of some of you do that all the time? But um, do you know what it's like to wake up and feel like you're the last person alive on earth? I I don't know if you know what I'm talking about or not, but um, maybe this will give you a little insight. Um, I remember, I for some reason it seemed like I I was taking a nap, and I as a younger person I didn't really take naps very often, so that didn't make sense. But for some reason I I seem to recall I, as a as a teenage boy, I had taken a nap and awakened in the middle of the day, and at a time when normally there would have been activity, uh, people moving about the house, and uh, my parents busy with whatever obligations they had. Everything was quiet. And there was no one in the house but me. And I walked around for a while, wondering where people were, And if you, like me, grew up hearing certain kinds of preaching, you know what was going through my head. I grew up under the strong preaching of my father, who as both a pastor and then later as an evangelist... um, it, it may not surprise you to know that evangelists often uh, go from church to church and they repeat messages. So, because, you know, you're, you're preaching to a different church, a different audience. And um, one of my dad's standard routine messages often for the closing night of a revival meeting was a sermon on the rapture, the second coming of Christ, and uh, you go through all of that, and, and as a young person, that was deeply ingrained in my, in my thinking and hearing preaching from Matthew 25, where you read there will be two grinding at the mill, and one will be taken, and another will be left, and Two will be sleeping in the bed, and one will be taken, and another will be left. And, and all, of, all of those, all that goes along with that. And um, th- that wasn't the only time that happened. There have been n- numbers of times that, as a young person, that happened where I, for either the fact that I was troubled in my conscience, or my conscience was more, maybe a little too sensitive, um, I would sometimes wonder if Jesus had come back and I had not been ready. I want to talk to you for a little while this morning and maybe for another couple Sundays if the Lord leads about Jesus' return reading to you from Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is right after the ascension of Jesus Christ. He has gone up into heaven, 
the disciples are standing around gawking, we would say, staring probably slack-jawed up into heaven as they have just seen gravity lose its grip on Jesus and him ascend up into the clouds. And verse 9 of Acts chapter 1 says, when Jesus had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's bow our hearts for just a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak through these words exactly as you see fit. Father, may the influence be not that of human personality or words, but may it be that of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you give us a heart to respond, and most importantly, whether we go into your presence by way of death or by way of the rapture or the judgment, however it happens, Father, we all want to be ready no matter what it takes, and we'll thank you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The beginning of a new year is a good time to think about this. The medley arrangement that Sister Pam just played was so just perfectly appropriate, uh, celebrating the first coming of Jesus, that we have just come through that time of celebration, and then moving on to, to uh, celebrate the second coming, that the day will come when the sky will part, and He will come and receive His bride unto Himself. Now, this is not a message intended to be about prophecy or end-time events. It's not intended to be a, a message about predictions, though there are certainly some prophetic elements that are involved in a message like this. Humanity probably ever since, well, easily we know ever since the days that the New Testament was written, people were trying to predict, to trying to figure out when Jesus was going to come back. In fact, just prior to his ascension, that's the very question that the disciples were asking Jesus. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? When is this going to happen? Will you at this time set up your kingdom? And Jesus essentially said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has placed under his own power and authority. This is not your concern. It's not your business. And really, ever since that day, all throughout, we can read it in the Thessalonian letters, uh, the church at Thessalonica had a, a group of people that were trying to tell others that Jesus had already come back and that some had missed out, and Paul writes to them to say, no, you're, this, is, this is not the time. Churches, denominations, cults have begun, have, have sprung up over uh, the idea that through finding secret codes or messages in the Bible or certain prophetic writings that we might be able to predict and pin down the time, the, the, the date that Jesus would come back. I remember when I was a young boy, many of you will remember this, and in the mid-80s to 
uh, about the late 80s, a gentleman uh, wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come Back in 1988. And he actually had the date pinned down to one of two days. And, And if I remember right, it was maybe one day in September and one day in October. I don't remember all the reasons why, but he had a little booklet written. And I tell you, if you remember being around during that time, it created quite a stir in the church. My family knew a lot of Nazarenes that were stirred up about that book, and many were maybe not fully convinced, but there were many who were quite uh, optimistic about uh, the way that that man had written and the possibility that maybe, maybe he's right, maybe Jesus is going to come back in 1988. And here it is, 2023, and here we still are. Jesus has not yet come back. I also want you to know, before I continue, that this is not intended to make use of scare tactics. I was recently talking with my sister about someone that I'd overheard speaking uh, about spiritual abuse. And I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but there is a among conservative churches, not, not just our element of conservative churches, but I believe uh, other, other churches as well, there is a trend uh, of faith deconstruction. And that's literally what, what they're calling it, deconstructing their faith. And, and it is a group of people that they, on, on looking back in their lives, the way they were raised and the way they learned God's Word and the way they learned to live and practice faith, they, they have begun, begun to realize, they think, that, that they were taught incorrectly. And so they are deconstructing in order to rebuild what is, they believe, a more uh, appropriate faith. Um, maybe there are some cases when that needs to be done. I'm not trying to say that, that there's no validity to that. Um, and I'm not telling you there's no such thing as spiritual or maybe what I would call ecclesiastical uh, abuse. Uh, uh, that is ministers of the church or churches using certain tactics uh, in order to gain uh, followers or gain adherence to faith or dogma. That, there certainly have been instances of that. However, the individual that I was listening to was talking about the very, uh, the very example that I began with. I, uh, the, uh, this one mentioned as a child, maybe, maybe waking up in the middle of the night and, and uh, a quiet house and, and uh, maybe slipping through to peek in mom or dad's bedroom to make sure that they were still in the bed and uh, to reassure themselves that Jesus had not come back and that they had been left behind. And, and this person referred to that kind of, uh, of behavior as a result of spiritual abuse. To which I wanted to say, what? Really? Uh, you know, I, I've got to be honest with you and tell you, I, I never liked that experience. It wasn't a fun experience. 
But today I'm thankful for those experiences. I'm grateful for every, um, for every message that I heard about hell. I'm grateful for the messages that I heard about the second coming. Because while I understand we as Christians need to come to a point where we live for and serve and follow Jesus because we are genuinely in love with him. There's also very much a, a valid uh, a point to be made for having the fear of God and the fear of judgment and the fear of hell and the fear of being left behind. There is real validity to that because you see, friends, all you have to do is read your Bible and you will find that Jesus warned more about the dangers of hell than he told us about the glory and the beauty of heaven. If Jesus taught that way, then certainly it must be appropriate for us to remember and be reminded that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The first thing that I want to point out to you, this is not what the, the message is about in general, but simply to encourage you to truly believe that Jesus is coming back. I don't intend to take much time to convince you. Uh, you either believe it or, or, or you don't. I think to some people, the idea that Jesus is literally, physically going to return to earth someday is kind of like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or, or maybe some other legendary character or mythological story that, yeah, yeah, I've heard that kind of thing and... You know, maybe, maybe there's something to it, but it's never really had a deep impact on my life, so I'm just going to go on living my life. I just want to give a very brief presentation about why we ought to believe it. We've talked about this not too long ago, the fact that the Bible is trustworthy. God's Word is something that we can trust. It will not lead us incorrectly. Not only is the Bible trustworthy, but the Bible contains hundreds of messianic prophecies, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300. And all of these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The prophets of the Old Testament told us about how Jesus would come to this world and be born in Bethlehem and how he would be, Isaiah spoke of him as the suffering servant, that one who would not hold any physical attraction or beauty but would be scarred and marred and would go to a cross and be there wounded for our transgression. All of these and more, these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Then finally, on this matter, Jesus and the angels and the apostles all promised and taught that Jesus would return, that he would come back a second time. 
Now, if we can look at God's word and find that it promised, it prophesied that Jesus would come the first time and we read and realize that he came just as the prophets foretold, that against all odds, hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled in this one person, and if it came about exactly as God's word tells us, then doesn't it stand to reason that when Jesus and the apostles and the angels, when they tell us, and it's recorded in God's word, that he is coming back a second time, doesn't it stand to reason we can take him at his word? Oh, friends, I want to tell you to believe it with all your heart. Be convinced so much so that if you ever awaken in the matter, I'm not, I'm not trying to disturb anyone with a sensitive conscience. I'm not trying to use scare tactics, as I said just a moment ago. But I believe we ought to be so convinced that one day it will be a reality that if we ever awaken in the middle of the night to that feeling that we're the last person alive on earth, we ought to be disturbed in our hearts especially if there's something in our conscience. Now, hopefully all of us, the very next thought should be, no, I'm walking in the light. I'm walking with Jesus so I can be confident that I haven't missed Jesus' return. That's where we ought to be living. But if you are ever at the point where you have a troubled conscience, I'm convinced we ought to believe so strongly in the reality that this will one day take place. That if you have, if, if you are, are blessed to live in a home with someone else, that you know that person. I, I remember, not just the story that I started with, but I remember times of waking up in the middle of the night, sneaking through the house and making sure that my mom and dad were still in the bed. Say, oh, preacher, that's, that's foolish. Well, you think about it what you will. I just... I just want to tell you, I believed in it then, and I believe in it now, that one day there will be a literal, physical return of Jesus Christ. The big question I have for you this morning is this, and I, I just want you to think about it. Do I live like I really believe Jesus is coming back? Do I live like I really believe Jesus is coming back? You know, when you really believe something, it will change the way you live. I remember a gentleman that I used to work with who had been somewhat overweight, not to the extreme, just a little bit, and a typically unhealthy man, not, not an extremely unhealthy man man, but a typically unhealthy man. You know what I'm saying? Um, a guy I used to work with. And I, for whatever reason, I think, I don't know, maybe I left that place of employment and then I, I came back to the same place and, and saw this man again. And in the interim, the time that I, I hadn't seen him for some time, man, he had changed. He had slimmed down. He'd lost a lot of weight. And uh, I remember talking with him about it. And he said, oh, man, yeah. He said, I had... He, I think he'd had a, a heart problems and maybe had to have heart surgery and had uh, maybe diagnosed with diabetes and something else. And, and uh, the doctors told him, buddy, you better change 
the way you are living or you're going to cut your life short. Well, the doctors convinced him and he believed it. And he believed it so much that he completely changed the way he lived his life. That's what I'm talking about. Do I live like I really believe Jesus is coming back? A couple of things that I mean by that, and for the remainder of our time together this morning, I want to talk about just one just one thing. What, what would it look like if I really believed Jesus is coming back? If I, if I say I really believe He's coming back and I, I'm going to live my life like I really believe it, what would that look like? And, and I would say this morning one thing, that is this. If I really believed that Jesus was coming back, I would want to make sure that I am comfortable in His presence. I would want to make sure that I'm comfortable in the presence of Jesus. In order to do that, the first thing that you would need to do would would simply be to come to Him. Don't avoid Him. Don't put him off, don't make him a little bit lower on your list of priorities, but come to him. He he invites people to come to him, and we ought to come to Jesus. You know, you can't be really fully comfortable in the presence of anyone that you have rejected, right? Uh, I read uh, this morning about a young salesman that became discouraged because he'd been rejected by so many customers that he had approached. And he asked an older, more experienced salesman for some advice. And he said, why is it that every time I make a call on someone, I get rejected? And that older man said, I just don't understand that. He said, I've never been rejected. He said, I've been hit on the head and called dirty names and thrown out the door. But he said, I've never been rejected. You know, we're often very polite about rejecting Jesus. So many that want to say, I, you know, I don't want to reject Jesus. I just don't want to come to him now. I just don't want to conform my life to his will for me now. I'm not rejecting him. In John chapter 5, Jesus uh, is speaking to the religious leaders of his day about their rejection of him. And it is a a, a discourse that is is quite lengthy. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you, but uh, among other things in in these verses, Jesus talks about, one, his power to grant life. That's verse 21 of John chapter 5. He talks about his power or his authority to judge. And that's verse 22 of John chapter 5. He also talks about the resurrection in this passage in John chapter 5. And then towards the end of this discourse, verses 39 and 40, Jesus tells the religious leaders of his day, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that, they, that you may have life. You know, friends, ultimately, the reason people do not have life and the reason that people will not be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ is not so much because of the sin in their lives, but it's simply because they have never come to Jesus. If people will come to Jesus, Jesus will take care of the sin. You see, friends, we need to understand that he is the one way. He is the only way. And anything but acceptance of Jesus is a rejection of Jesus. A, to put him off, to say, oh, may, maybe later. I don't want to reject you, but, but just not now. That is a rejection of Jesus. What does acceptance look like? Well, Jesus said it this way. He said, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to be comfortable in the presence of Jesus, you must first come to him. <clears throat> Not only must you come to him, but we must come to the point where we are fully submitted to Jesus, where we are fully submitted to Jesus. Now, I know that there is a line of thought both in our holiness doctrine churches, our Wesleyan churches, and also in, in, in Calvinistic churches. There's a, a line of thought that, that says you can be saved and on your way to heaven and not necessarily have Jesus as your Lord. That's baloney. Um, how it works in Wesleyan churches, our, our churches where we believe in, in salvation and sanctification, uh, people get this misconception that, well, I, I'm, I'm saved, but I'm not yet entirely sanctified, and so I'll... I'll hold on to this area of my life for a little while. Um, any kind of faith that is truly saving faith is lordship faith and makes Jesus the boss of your life. This is not a message about second blessing holiness, so I've got to make sure I try to stay on track. Um. Let me just add to you, since I mentioned the two, kind of the two doctrines, I mentioned Wesleyan doctrine, now I'll mention the Calvinistic doctrine, how it tends to work in, in their faith. They don't necessarily use the terminology that we would use of saved and sanctified, but, but they believe that you can have sin in your life and still be saved and on your way to heaven. And that's the kind of thing that m makes me twitch. I, you know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is praying for 
the church at Ephesus. And uh, I'm not going to read to you the entire prayer, but he's praying for them in, in summary that they would be filled with all the fullness of God, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And in one part of that prayer, he says, he, he prays this, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, friends, there is a difference between being resident somewhere and being fully in control. That's what it means to dwell. When Paul was praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts, he's, he's saying that Christ may be completely at home in your heart. That, uh, as Ephesians 5.18 says, there he says, Do not get drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And there, the idea of being filled with the Spirit is the idea of control. And it is the, the truth, the realization, that in all of our lives... We open every area, every door, we keep nothing hidden, and we say, Lord, I want you to have full control over my heart and over my life, and, and nothing held back. Maybe this simple explanation will help a little bit. If you can imagine your life as a car, now that's a cute little car, isn't it? If you can imagine your life as a car, and salvation is inviting Jesus into your car. Where would Jesus be? You know, some people in their salvation want to have Jesus in the trunk of their car, like their spare tire or like their jumper cables. You know, it's great to have along just in case you need it right? To some people, I think that Jesus is uh, in their lives like their children sitting in the back seat. Reminds me of the story of the man who his, his child first got their driver's license for the first time and, and went out, child gets in the driver's seat and the dad says, I've been waiting for this for a long time. And dad gets in the back seat and the child says, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to sit back here and kick the back of the seat while you drive. I, I think to a lot of people, salvation is like that, that, that they, you know, yeah, I love, I love my children and I wouldn't leave them behind anywhere and I want them with me. But sometimes just sitting in the back seat, kicking while I'm trying to drive, it's annoying and sometimes that's what it's like for people to have Jesus in their lives. He's in the back seat. They, they want him. They wouldn't want to be without him. But too often they find him interfering and annoying in their lives. To some people, Jesus is, he may be like the passenger in the seat beside you. And that's, I mean, we're getting closer to where he needs to be. That's great. 
Some people, he's, he's like the, the passenger in the seat beside them. He's a good friend. He's a, he's a companion, and, and they want him there right beside him. And, you know, used to see those, those bumper stickers that say, God is my co-pilot. And friends, can I just tell you, if God is your co-pilot, you need to change seats. This is the point of this idea of being fully surrendered, fully submitted, that, that Jesus needs to be in the driver's seat of our lives, of every aspect, every area, nothing held back, nothing concealed, but everything that he wants to touch. And if you've been at this for very long or you've tried to live for the Lord, then you know that occasionally God will come along and, and touch an area of your life that's uncomfortable, a sore spot. And there might be a little bit of a hesitancy and a withdrawal to say, oh, Lord, not, not that. But friends, I would not be comfortable for Jesus to come back if there had been any area of my life where God had tried to talk to me and I had held back and tried to maintain control of that myself and said, oh, Lord, everything else you can have, but not that. I just wouldn't be comfortable for Jesus to come back in that condition. Finally, and I, this is, all of these are important, but this is very important. The, the fact that we have spent time with him, that we've spent time with him. I, I mentioned this to some of the men in the uh, breakfast yesterday. The problem that some people have of, of treating salvation like a transactional uh, experience. They've, they've gotten saved, and so... According to common belief, that means that, that what happens when I die is taken care of. In other words, when I die, I'll go to heaven. So, that's, so I'm good. <clears throat> and many want that assurance that their sins are forgiven and they'll go to heaven when they die, but then they spend very little time in God's presence. Spend very little time getting to know Him. Spend very little time learning what he is like. And you see, friends, the problem with that is in heaven, God is inescapable. You won't be able to get away from his presence in heaven. And it'd be a really good idea to get comfortable in his presence now. That's why I think it's so important that we spend time with him. You see, Jesus' intention for his people is discipleship. He called people to follow him. He meant, it meant calling them to be his disciple, to be his apprentice. And that involved being present with him, being present with him. It involved learning from him and then imitating him. 
in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. We're all, most people are familiar with Romans 8, 28. That says, for, we know that all things work together for good to them uh, that love the Lord, those that are the called according to his purpose. And we often forget to go on to verse 29 because there it tells us what God's purpose is. The good that he wants to work out in my life and in your life is that he would conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And all of these things take time with Jesus, spending time with Him. It's like, I, I looked this up, you can do your own research, so just very quickly mention, uh, it's like a couple that have been married for so long that they start to look like each other. Have you ever observed that? Have you ever seen that? Some, someone, that, you know, and it's you know, like, how... Does that happen? Um, and there, there's, people have done studies about how and why that happens. It's very interesting, but that's the idea. We spend time with Jesus till we start to look like Him, till we start to act like Him, till His kind of words come out of our mouth. His kind of behavior flows out of our lives. And all of these things are important and true. Discipleship, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. But, but you know, I believe what God wants from us more than anything is the relationship with us. He wants us to be with Him. He wants to be with us. It's relationship. Thomas Carlyle was a Scottish writer, historian, and philosopher. He was a leading writer of the Victorian era. He had married his secretary, a lady whom he had grown to dearly love. But he was thoughtless and absorbed in his own interests and activities much of his life. And even after marriage, though he dearly loved this lady, he often treated her as if she were still just his employee. After some time, she was stricken with cancer and confined to bed for a long period of time before she eventually died. After her funeral, Thomas Carlyle went back to his empty house Grieving, wandering around through the empty rooms, he began thinking about the woman that he had loved. After a while, he went upstairs to her room and sat down in the chair beside the bed on which she had been lying for months. While sitting there, he realized with painful regret that he had not sat there very often during her long period of illness. He noticed her diary laying there beside the bed, and he never would have read it while she was alive, but now that she had passed on, he felt free to pick it up and thumb through the pages. One entry caught his eye. She had written about her husband. Yesterday he spent an hour with me, and it was like being in heaven. I love him so much. He turned a few more pages and read, I listened all day to hear his steps in the hallway, and now it's late. I guess he will not come to see me today. 
Carlisle read on a few more entries and then threw the book on the floor and rushed out the house through the rain back to the cemetery and fell on his wife's grave in the mud, sobbing, tears streaming down his face, saying, if only I had known, if only I had known. Yes, friends, God wants us to be like Jesus, and that takes time with him. Jesus wants us for a disciple to come follow him and become like him, and that takes time with him. But more than anything, he simply wants us to be with him. Time with us. Time, our time spent with him. And I have to be honest and tell you this morning that I don't believe I would feel too comfortable for Jesus to come back if I knew that I had been neglecting to be intentional about spending time with him. Let's stand together, please. I struggled 